Well, some of you know I have spent the last two weeks in Mexico. Uh, to be honest, it's not the worst place to spend the last two weeks of January. Uh, we had our annual church leadership time uh, two weeks ago with uh, the leadership at Emmanuel Presbyterian in Valladolid in the Yucatan Peninsula, and then that was followed this past week with our youth trip with a bunch of our teenagers and Mac Holt and his direction, and, and we've had a great time. Uh, I spent a lot of time with Pastor Filomeno. Many of you all know him, have met him. He'll be here in the month of May, uh, or during the month of May, if uh, you haven't met him. I would simply suggest to you that he is a remarkable human being. Uh, He's an outstanding pastor. He's a visionary. He's a friend. He's a leader. He's all of that. Quentin Pepiot said he was a Renaissance man, of which I was very impressed. Quentin knew the word Renaissance. Um, However... I have spent so much time with Filomeno and in the Yucatan Peninsula, I have enough sermon illustrations that will last for the rest of the year. Uh, I'm going to share a couple of those this morning. But as we think about this passage, the time that I have spent with Pastor Filomeno and his church over these last couple of weeks, it really caused me to think about this particular passage. As you think about these words and in its original context, this is very much missional and it's very much developmental for us as followers of Christ. If you're not familiar with this book, uh, it's commonly referred to as one of the, quote, pastoral epistles. Titus, along with 1 and 2 Timothy, really outlines what it is to be a leader in the church and how a church is supposed to function. For us to understand both the role of elders and deacons and how churches are to go about their business. So here we get guidance on what church leaders are to be about, primarily their character, and what churches are truly about. Now you need to know, when we go to Mexico, we are not there to ascertain if Pastor Filomeno meets that standard. Oh, no, 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 that's not what we're doing. He's way beyond that. He's an incredible pastor. But really what I want to think about this morning is in verse, chap- or verse 4 of chapter 1 where Paul tells Titus there's something about a common faith. That is, all over the face of the earth, wherever there are people of Jesus Christ who belong to his body, there is something common about our faith. Two weeks ago when we were there for Sunday school, they do their Sunday school in the morning and worship in the evening, uh, Pastor Philo divided the congregation up into three different parts. And he had an elder go into each section, and they prayed for three different places around the world. See if you recognize any of these places. He had one elder pray for Togo, one elder pray for Mintz, Belarus, and one elder pray for Cumbernauld, Scotland. If you don't know, those are our partnering cities. So it's really cool to hear the voices of people inside of the Yucatan praying for our other partner cities all over the world. And it dawned on me. At that particular moment, even though I couldn't understand anything they were praying for, that counting TCPC in Lexington, those are five different particular churches all over the face of the earth, and none of them have anything in common particularly except for our faith, our faith in Christ. The issues in Scotland are just not the same as the issues in Mexico But yet, same baptism, same spirit, same holy meal, same Bible, same great commission. And what I want us to see this morning is that preachers and elders, though they are unique in their settings, we all have a common faith. And it's with this in mind that I want to focus on these first few verses this morning. 
You see, Paul's opening words to Titus outline so beautifully about what God is about and about what his church is doing. So that is, our lives in Christ are comprised of what the Lord is doing. Here's another way of saying this. What should you expect preachers to say from the pulpit? Wherever you are on the face of the earth, in Mexico, Scotland, Belarus, or Togo, what are preachers supposed to be talking about? That's what you should think about when you hear these words of a common faith. I want to mention two things this morning for followers of Jesus Christ of what we are about as outlined in Paul's letter to Titus. Two things. First, a truth which changes us. And secondly, a hope which encourages us. A truth which changes and a hope which encourages. Now, first, a truth which changes us. Look back at verse 1. Let me read this again. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. You see, as Paul begins this letter, he wants to communicate that there is something outrageously important that Titus is to know. And he begins this letter with this in mind. I even think he uses the word elect here to get his attention. He does not delve into the mystery of election or predestination. He does that in other places in the Bible. But rather he jumps right to the point of what his passion is about is for the faith of God's people. Their belief in the God that they cannot see, that faith is to be strong. But to Titus, he just assumes the knowledge that is a particular group of people from all the way back to ages past, that God has been committed to this universal, ageless church of Jesus Christ. So therefore, when you hear these words, these are not just random suggestions for people thinking about God and their spiritual life. Rather, these are the words of the Creator God given to His chosen people for all time, for our faith to be strong. And here's what he says is that the knowledge of the truth. And it begs the question, what truth is Paul referring to here? What is the truth? Not a truth, what is the truth? And I think without question, what's on Paul's heart here is what flows out of John chapter 8 when Jesus says, the truth will set you free. And this freedom is found, of course, in the person of Christ. What Jesus purchased for you, his life, his death, his resurrection, our sins put on him, his righteousness put upon us. He now gives us his spirit. Everything that we love, the gospel message, our old way of life gone, now we have a new way of life in Christ. And we would all say amen to that. That is the truth. But notice that's not all Paul says about the truth. Look at the rest of chapter 1. This great news and our church is built upon it. But see that this truth has an agenda. This truth has a direction. There's an objective to it. The fact that Jesus has made us free implies that we are now free to do something. We are free to be something. We are free to be who he has made us to be. Second half of verse 1 provides the answer. We are now people of faith who are enabled by Christ to possess godliness. 
What goes with the gospel message is a changed life by the people who believe the message. You see, the heart of God to his people in Christ is this. That the lives which used to define us, our lives apart from him, our lives without him, are the opposite of godliness. So therefore, we were people who needed someone to come and save us. Someone who needed Christ to change us. And what we see about the God who did this is that he is perfect in all of his ways. You see, the gospel shouts to us that both we are sinners and that we need a savior. And that now our sanctification is how we are marked in our salvation. So please see here, let me make this perfectly clear. Your salvation is based on the behavior of Jesus Christ, not your behavior. Yet when you put your faith in Christ, it affects your life because what we constantly see day after day is that Christ is better than anything else we could ever want. Meaning that the truth of Christ gives us a whole new life. You see, we are now a people who believe what he says is best, not what we think is best. So let me give you this scenario. Here's how this worked. And you can draw your applications from this. Our leader, Jesus, says that something is good. So therefore, regardless of what we think, we are to trust in what he says. Our leader, Jesus, says that something is bad. Regardless of what we think, we trust him that it's bad. You see, now in Christ, we are free to obey him by believing that he knows what he's doing. Uh, two weeks ago, I had a little bit of a gap in between the, the two trips to Mexico. The first team left, and there were a couple days before the youth group team came down. In my mind, that was going to be a fun time of rest, and I was going to read and that sort of thing. Pastor Filomeno had a different plan altogether. Uh, on Thursday of that week, he picked me up early in the morning where we drove two and a half hours to go visit a university that he's interested in his church being a part of, and he just wanted me to see it. And it, it was kind of interesting. But here was the point. It was lunchtime, and I'm in the back seat of a two-door car without air conditioning with four of us in the car. It's hot as it can be, and Philo is ready to eat lunch. You need to know that I've been to Mexico a lot, and I've been paranoid about what we eat down there every single time that I've been. There are horror stories of people getting sick because of what they eat. They got sick because they ate something they shouldn't have eaten. So Philo pulls into a restaurant. Uh, I would have never in a million years stopped at this place. Not for all the pesos in the world, I would have never gone. There are no menus at the place. There were six tables with a Coca-Cola tent over the tables, and it was alongside the road, and there were chickens everywhere. They only served one dish, fried chicken. That's it. Rice and beans went with it, but it was fried chicken. So either you ordered something or you didn't order something, but what you ordered was the same thing, fried chicken. So Philo ordered for all of us. The chicken came out. I looked at it knowing that that chicken had probably been running around the restaurant earlier that day. And I thought, I'm going to be sicker than I have ever been in my entire life. 
more than I ever imagined, this is going to be awful. But allegedly, I am a missionary at that point. So, all right, they tell you to eat whatever's put before you, so I'm going to eat whatever's put before me. But the leader said, it's good. And I said, well, what the heck, here goes nothing. (laughs) And I'm telling you, that was the greatest fried chicken I have ever put in my mouth ever in my life. It was amazing. Again, I assume three hours later, I would die or I would wish I were dead or whatever. All I had was an amazing lunch with our leader who told me it's good. I didn't die. I didn't get sick. I had no digestive issues whatsoever. I had a wonderful time of fellowship. And a meal because the leader said, it's good. Trust me and eat. You see, in faith, it does not matter what we think. It matters what our leader says is true. And when Jesus leads us toward truth, it changes us. Our natural disposition is to be opposed to the Lord. He is constantly changing us to where we can trust him. Jesus is conforming us by leading us to trust him in ways and places that we would never want to. So let me ask you this morning, what are you holding on to? What do you not want Jesus to change? What do you know that he declares to you is good, but you're holding on saying, oh, no, 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 no. I know what's better than him. Is it your sexuality? Is it your greed? Is it your lack of love for your enemies? Is it your refusal to forgive? Whatever that is, can you trust that Jesus will lead you in good places? And you know, I I would be remiss not to simply point this out. This is a letter to pastors. This is a letter to elders. You do not want a pastor who loves knowledge, but is not changed by that knowledge. That's a bad pastor. And you do want a pastor who will both preach and live with a growing faith. You see, this is a common faith for all of us all over the world. When you put your faith in Christ, he changes us. That's what he does. If your faith is going to be strong, you're going to be different. And that's a good thing. So the first thing we see, a growing faith is revealed by a truth that changes us. But secondly, notice in verse 2, a hope which encourages us. This is so simple, but it really does greatly affect how we live. You see, the faith of the elect is based on something that we must agree is both wonderful on one hand and difficult on the other. Our faith is wonderful because our future life is guaranteed by the God who says he cannot lie. And when he does not lie, he says that you will receive eternal life. So just as our salvation now is marked by our sanctification, so someday our salvation will be marked by our glorification. Our eternal life does mean that a day will come when we have entirely new bodies. Bodies that will not wear out and die. Bodies that will not be broken down. When Jesus returns, we will live forever in peace with our neighbors. 
We will not know of wars. We will not know of tragedies. There will not be helicopter crashes. There will not be illnesses. We will work. We will play. We will laugh. We will worship. And we will never be sinned against. And we will never sin. In Christ, that is our destiny. And it is good news and it is wonderful. And yet... The promise of our eternal life is a bit difficult. Why? Because we're all ready for it right now, and it's not fully here. Our souls are longing for heaven to come right now. We cry, no more brokenness. No more messed up families. No more broken lives. No more underemployment. No more dissatisfaction. No more pain. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Thus, Paul tells Titus, for the sake of the faith of the elect, you have hope that all of this someday will, in fact, be real. You see, hope is one of our ultimate gifts. No matter what you're going through this morning, whatever pain that is there, if you have hope in Christ, it cannot be taken from you. And your hope is based on a promise that is real. You know what strikes me in verse 2 is not not just that hope is our gift. Of course it is. But how the Holy Spirit left Paul here, led Paul here, to give this reality of the guarantee. That eternal life is promised to us by the one all the way from ages past who cannot lie. You see, either you believe this or you don't. It's either real or it isn't. And if we do, we build our lives around the fact that this is, in fact, our destiny because it's true. You know, one day uh, last week as we were doing VBS in one of the small villages, our teenagers uh, acted out uh, the story of David and Goliath. And I have to admit, I witnessed one of the strangest while simultaneously funniest things I've ever seen in my entire life. We did the story of David and Goliath every single day we were down there. On day three, the actors got a little comfortable with their script. And that is they were more playing to the uh, reaction of the audience than they were actually living out the story of the Bible. And it was funny. Day Day three... All the boys who were dressed up as Philistines got very, very comfortable in their mode of being Philistines. So Jack DeLong played little King David, the young shepherd. Max Volkert sat on Keaton Randall's shoulders and was Goliath. The Ogden boys, Luke and Andrew and Quentin Pepiot, were the Philistines. They were all dressed up and they looked like members of the Taliban. It was so weird. So here, David takes a small piece of paper wrapped up to look like a stone. And they have played this out. Jack throws it, hits Max right between the eyes. He falls back. Keaton takes him back. The crowd is laughing hysterically. They're supposed to be laughing. There are probably 75 or 80 kids watching. They're completely enthralled, seeing Goliath fall down, these two guys going backwards. And at that moment, I'm not sure exactly what happened. But our knucklehead Philistines... uh, began to start resuscitating the life of Goliath. (laughs) Andrew acts like he's pumping the chest of Goliath. Keaton acts like he's going to do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. 
Finally, our Philistines gather around the dead Goliath and take a knee and pay homage to their fallen hero. I'm sitting in the crowd laughing hysterically. And then it dawned on me. This is not what happened in the Bible. (laughs) Goliath is never the hero of the story. This is not right. I don't know how this happened with our Philistines, but they messed up the whole story. Funny? Absolutely. True? Not one bit. Fortunately, Anna Ortiz was a narrator. She cleaned up the acting. But the truth of the matter is it was a beautiful picture of what our hearts are inclined to do. We will find whatever looks good and strong and put our hope in it, even though there are no promises of truth in it at all. You see, we will make up our own truth to match what we want to be real. And then we will build our life upon that and shift from one thing to another to another. All the while knowing that David point us to Jesus and Jesus is the one who set us free and Jesus is the one who is coming back. I'm happy to report on the fourth day, Goliath died and all the Philistines ran away like they were supposed to. But here's the truth. God has promised us eternal life. It has begun right now. If you have put your faith in Christ, you have his Holy Spirit alive inside of you. That is your deposit. Your gift today is hope for all that is ours in the future. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And he, in fact, will come again. Do you see what makes a growing faith? It's a changed life built upon the hope of Christ. We need to constantly be conforming to his ways because they're better than ours. And we need the assurity that God will give all that he has promised he will give. This is the message of the gospel all over the world. And this is the message that all followers of Christ need to hear again and again and again. Jesus is our master and he is preparing us to be with him in a perfect world to live and serve and reign forever. This is the message to the nations. Your faith matters. Your belief in the God whom you cannot see matters. And now we see that Jesus cares so much about your faith. He not only has given you his word, he has not only given you his spirit, he has given you his church, but he also has provided the table that is prepared before us, where we have this tangible declaration of how much God cares for his people, that he gave his very body and blood. So let me pray now and ask that the Lord would prepare us to come to this feast. Oh, Father, as we think about the reality that you have made promises to us, and those promises are all proven true in you, Lord Jesus, I pray that as we join around this feast with your people, that you, in fact, would strengthen our hearts. Would you strengthen our lives? Oh, Father, you know the temptations we face. We know the trials that we are enduring Lord Jesus, we need to be reminded today that you are with us. Thank you for the sacrament. Thank you for this table. 
Speak to us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.